Welcome to Madison's Notes, the official podcast of Princeton University's James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. I'm your host, Nino Scalia. Our website is jmp.princeton.edu, and our Twitter handle is at Madison Program. It's great to have you with us. Our guest today is Adam J. White. He is a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute in Washington, D.C., where he focuses on American constitutionalism, the Supreme Court, and the administrative state, which we will be discussing today. He is also an assistant professor of law and the director of the C. Boyd and Gray Center for the Study of the Administrative State at George Mason University's Antonin Scalia Law School. Previously, he was a research fellow for Stanford University's Hoover Institution, and an adjunct fellow for the Manhattan Institute. He started his legal career as a law clerk for Judge David Sentel at the U.S. Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit. He holds a J.D. from Harvard Law School and a Bachelor of Business Administration from the College of Business at the University of Iowa. Adam White, welcome. Well, thanks, Nino. It's great to be here. Now, you joined the American Enterprise Institute as a member of the still relatively new Social, Cultural, and Constitutional Studies Research Division. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that program and what you guys are up to? Yeah, I'd love to. Um, you know, until recently I was at the Hoover Institution, which is an I, I just love it. It's a really great institution, and I was very lucky to be there. Um, but about a year ago this time, uh, AEI went through a leadership change. Um, Arthur Brooks, a longtime leader, uh, stepped down to pursue other things, and they brought in a, a good Princetonian, Robert Doerr, to, uh, to, to be the new uh, president of Hoover. And that a decision was made to rebuild a part of AEI that's really a core part of its legacy, but had sort of fallen to the wayside over the years. And this was the part of AEI focused on um, constitutionalism, not just in terms of you know, case law and so on, although, of course, that's important, but just thinking about who we are as a country, um, the social and cultural trends that actually constitute us. Um, and the ramifications that has for law and policy. These are the sorts of things that people like Walter Burns, Irving Kristol, uh, Antonin Scalia, um, uh, Leon Cass, and, and others studied over the years at, at AEI. And so the decision was made to formally institute an entirely new division within AEI called, as you said, um, Social, Cultural, and Constitutional Studies. A great number of great AEI scholars like Carlin Bowman and Jonah Goldberg and Ramesh Panuru, another Princetonian, uh, <laughs> there's a pattern here, um, were uh, transferred over to this division and, to be led by Yuval Levin, the founder of National Affairs magazine. And um, they brought in a few of us new people uh, to be resident scholars and help build this out. Now, the point of the program, as the name suggests, is to bring together those basic themes that constitute the American people, those that foundation upon which these other policy deb- um, uh, debates happen. Um, I kind of like the title in that it puts the Constitution at the end. As a lawyer, I'm used to thinking of the Constitution as the start of everything, and in a sense it is. Constitution, statutes, regulations, democratic process, and so on. It's good to be reminded, though, that the Constitution also comes at the end of another process, that process of the American people coming together with uh, their traditions, their values, um, their families, um, the, the states, local communities, and so on, and bringing all of that together in a way that produces a constitution and continues to change and affect the way that the American people think about the constitution in their own time. Um, So it's a real honor uh, and pleasure to be in this program. 
and and one of the things you're focusing on there is the administrative state. Yeah. And this is something we talk a lot about, but I think many of our listeners may not know exactly what the administrative state is. Yeah. So what is the administrative state? Some, well, the administrative <laughs> state is what you see when you look out my window in Washington. <laughs> uh, the, the administrative state, when that term gets used, I tend to think of it in two term, in two ways. Um, one is just the sum total of federal agencies. You look out the window in D.C. or you go up to the roof deck uh, at AEI and you look past Jonah Goldberg smoking his cigars <laughs> and you see all these buildings, some of them beautiful, some of them kind of uh, oppressive, and that's the administrative state. Everything from the Federal Trade Commission to the uh, the EPA to the Department of Treasury and on and on. Um, but also, in another sense, an administrative state, and th- for, from this I'm really borrowing from my friend Matthew Spaulding of, of Hillsdale, um, the administrative state is just a way of thinking about our government, a government that is that makes law and policy primarily through administration. Um, so in that sense, the administrative state is is you know in distinction with or in distinction to you know a Republican government that's driven primarily by a legislative process. And sadly, I think that's that's where we are today, where Congress um, is not so much the prime mover of government so much as ombudsman for an administrative state that really does drive law and policy going forward. How is it different from the deep state? Are they one and the same thing, or is there a no. difference? You know, I, I got to be honest. I always try to avoid the term the deep state uh-huh. um, just because it it's we don't mean it this way when we say it. Um, uh, but the deep state is really a term that comes from, I mean, much more corrupt and, 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 and dangerous political regimes than, mm. than what we have here. Um, I think a lot of people use the term very benignly, deep state. They use it as a, as a synonym for administrative state. And, and what they mean is that part of government that doesn't change with elections, that elections can move things around on the surface. But the real work of governance is something that happens further down um, underground, underwater, whatever the metaphor is, with deep, deep, uh, to keep mixing metaphors, deep, deep roots, um, uh, the, into substance that doesn't change, the bureaucracy that never really leaves. Mm-hmm. I sometimes joke, I, I say that the problem is that it's not a deep state, it's a shallow state. That's a lot of the people who we think of in, the, in that capacity, I wish they were deeper. Um, uh, you know, I, at the same time, I'll say, um, one of the things I don't like about the this criticism of the deep state is that um, is that there is a lot of value and stability and, and expertise in government. And this is something that the framers talked about a lot. Hamilton writes, I mean, Madison would write about what he called the genius of Republican liberty, which was striking that right balance between en- energy and stability. And Hamilton, who wrote more than anybody you know, in the Federalist about administration, worried about stability in government. You wanted energy. He wrote Federalist 70 about energy and the executive. But he wrote about energy in the executive for the sake of the steady administration of the laws. And when he writes about uh, what we now think of as cabinet agencies, he was worried about radical dislocations in policy, wild swings back and forth from administration to administration. You do need some kind of steadiness in government so that people can organize their lives um, under a law that they know won't change radically without a moment's notice. But at the same time, we want elections to have consequences, and we want to be able to elect a president who will turn the battleship of the administrative state in a different direction. And so it's it, the danger is thinking about this in terms of all or nothing. I think the key is to think of it as Madison and Hamilton did in terms of striking a right balance between those competing values. 
we may have some listeners now that are thinking, well, why should I care about the administrative state? I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a politician. I'm not a judge. What would you say to them? Why is this a concern to them? Well, it's what, what do the communists say? You might not care about history, but history cares about you. <laughs> yeah, that's... Um, the administrative state cares about you, sometimes a little bit too much. <laughs> um, I mean, l- listen, as a, as a bottom line matter, will the average person feel much of a difference in their day-to-day lives if a law was passed by Congress versus making a regulation of the EPA? Maybe. I mean, the way that those bodies go about their work is just different. Congress, to pass legislation, almost always requires some sort of compromise in the way that unilateral regulation by an agency doesn't. So the laws that govern us, whether we know it or not, are the product of those different processes. Um, But again, I mean, there might not be much of a difference at a given moment between what, say, a Republican Congress would pass and what um, Republican-controlled NLRB, National Labor Relations Board, um, when an act. I'd say the difference really is inside of us. Now I sound like a cliche. The administrative state is, 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 is in all of us. Um, but it's, it's, it's the difference between an active citizenry and a, and a passive citizenry. And, and a citizenry that understands that elections have consequences because they ought to have consequences and that we need to have real responsibility for choosing our leaders. The more and more that our laws are really made not by the leaders we elect, but by the leaders who the people we elect appoint, um, the more attenuated that is, the less control we feel like we have in, in day-to-day governance and the less we'll invest ourselves into that. Um, I, there's a great scholar out there, Adrian Vermeule. He's, he's great and kind. Uh, I disagree with him on almost everything. Um, <laughs> he had, this, he had a, a very challenging book a few years ago about the administrative state, and his argument was, the arc of history bends inevitably towards an administrative state. Mm. And that if we were to wipe it all away and start from sort of a Garden of Eden of, um, of Republican, Madisonian Republicanism, we'd still wind up where we are today, eventually. Mm. And so I was invited to give a talk responding to his book. And my point was, I, I disagreed with him on the facts. But if he's right, this is not something to be challenged. It's something to be mourned. Because to the extent that the American people demand an administrative state, that means we've reached a point you know, to borrow from um, Alistair McIntyre, a point after Republican virtue. Mm. Um, he had his famous book, After Virtue. And I think of the administrative state as what you get after Republican virtue, where people no longer have patience with the checks and balances of a slow and messy le- legislative process. And what they want is the imposition of power um, for the sake of policy right now without compromise. That's a very different country than the framers envisioned. Um, and I, I don't think it's a better country. Now, we'll get to Republican virtue a little later in the conversation. Yeah, I just, I just want to lay a marker there. Yeah, no, that, very nicely done. Yeah, um, but if, if the administrative state is not inevitable, mm-hmm. uh, then where did it come from? Uh, I know some people think that this is a, a wholly modern thing from the progressive era. And then some, I think Philip Hamburger says, no, we can trace the roots of this sort of administrative state back, I mean, centuries yeah. even. Yeah, how did it come about? It came about um, one step at a time, and usually for perfectly good reasons. Um, when I teach administrative law, um, on the first day, I always ask my students. My students have, at that point, taken constitutional law. And, you know, law students are very good at thinking about what it would have been like to be at the Constitutional Convention in 1787. What does it mean to build, make a constitution? And I say, okay, we have the constitution. You've been elected to Congress. You're the first Congress. The, the Electoral College votes have been counted. President Washington has been sworn in. Your Congress, what do you do next? And you never, It's hard to sort of think about that. What did they do? They, they built a government, 
there's two great books on this. One is called, uh, fittingly, First Congress uh, by Fergus Bordwich. And there's another book, the, I'm suddenly forgetting the author, but it's called Second Creation. And it's an account of how they actually took those beautiful words of the Constitution and translated them into a functioning government. And what do they do? And I, I hand my students, or I show them the first page of the, the statutes at large. So you see, one by one, the first statutes that Congress ever passed. Well, first, they they create taxes because it's Congress. Um, second, then, they start building departments. First was state or foreign affairs, um, then war, then treasury, then office of attorney general. They start building this structure of government. The Constitution knew that there would be departments. They didn't know which, they didn't say which ones. The Constitution doesn't specify it. Knew there would be heads of these departments. There'd be officers and inferior officers and specified how they're appointed, but not who they would be and what powers they'd have. And Congress had to decide what powers to vest in these, we call them today, agencies. And I asked the students just practical questions. You're in the first Congress and you need a post road from, from, from New York to Savannah or, or a, a road from Philadelphia, from, from, you know, what's now Washington, out west to the Cumber- to Cumberland. Um, you, you're going to pay for lighthouses in, in the port of Boston or Savannah, Charleston. How do you actually design that legislation? And the point is there's always going to be some discretion left. This is something James Madison writes about um, in Federalist 37, and it's also a theme throughout the Federalist, is, is the issue of discretion and vagueness and laws. And so my point is, from the very beginning, Congress had to make choices about how much discretion to vest in the executive branch, and it often vested a lot. Over time, you saw things like the Steamboat Commission, right? Steamboats, you know, the early steamboats going up and down the Mississippi River, like where I grew up, um, they did two things. They moved people around, and they blew up. And uh, the first thing was good. The second thing wasn't so good. So you needed a Steamboat Safety Commission on these interstate waters, uh, or for these interstate waters to regulate these ships. The next big step is in the, and I promise I won't like trace the entire administrative history. I've already lost like three quarters of your audience. <laughs> but in 1887, um, Congress creates the Interstate Commerce Commission to regulate interstate railroads, not thinking about it so much as a, as a part of executive power, but almost as a replacement for the courts, the federal courts that used to, in effect, regulate these railroads. So some parts of the administrative state were because were created because Congress decided that the courts weren't doing their job correctly. But you get this little by little, sometimes big moments like the Progressive Era um, and then ultimately the New Deal, the Great Society. You get moments like 1946 when Congress decides we have this these myriad agencies all doing things their own way. We need to impose some rationality onto it or some consistency. So they create the Administrative Procedure Act, which becomes sort of rules for the road. Sometimes people call that, the APA, the Constitution for the Administrative State. And you have to say, no, 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 we, we actually have a Constitution <laughs> yeah, for that. Right. It's called the Constitution. It says it right on the top. Um, but the APA was an important thing. Um, and then you get moments, uh, it, we often think of this, and, and a lot of what I've, des- I've, I've described is often you know, advocates for for strong national power or, or, say, the progressive movement in the early 20th century making this happen. Some of the most important moments came from the other direction, especially in recent years. You know, the Reagan era was an era of reasserting presidential control over a lot of these agencies. Um, or, or, say, in the Rehnquist court, um, de-emphasizing judicial micromanagement of agencies and leaving room for agencies to make decisions. I mean, Chevron deference, which is, um, for the non-lawyers out there, this this 
great amount of deference that courts generally give agencies when they're interpreting the law. Today, mostly conservatives are criticizing this, saying judges shouldn't defer to bureaucrats. They should just say what the law is. And that's that's true to an extent. But we have Chevron deference because for a long time, judges were really micromanaging agencies, using the work of judicial review and the interpretation of laws to really make policy judgments that made people uncomfortable. The, the greatest writings on this, and I'm not saying this to suck up to you and your the family connection, were the things that... Uh, Antonin Scalia wrote, the other Antonin Scalia, um, when uh, Justice Scalia, before he was Justice Scalia, before he was even Judge Scalia, when he was lowly law professor and think tanker Scalia <laughs> um, at, at AEI, where I now work, um, where he edited Regulation Magazine, a very exciting, a very exciting glossy, um, where he would write these beautiful essays on the balance of power and discretion between the president, the bureaucracy, Congress, the courts. Um, there was a real reformation in the 70s, 80s, um, away from judicial control or congressional control toward presidential control. And this was the, the Reagan administration and the Rehnquist court. Um, and then 40 years later, you think, well, the or conservatives think, well, the, the pendulum swung too far the other way. And so now most of the talk is reforming back away from executive supremacy towards at least a little more judicial control and congressional control. You mentioned Chevron. Yeah. So tell us what other cases a student of the administrative state should know about. Yeah. So I tend to think of it in terms of four categories, uh, structure, power, process, and judicial review. So Chevron is the case on judicial review. It's from the 1980s where the Rehnquist court really you know, said very strongly that when courts review the statutes that agencies administer, when courts interpret those statutes, they have to understand that those statutes often reflect Congress's judgment that the agencies need to have latitude to make policy and, and to interpret the law. So the courts give deference to an agency's legal interpretation, uh, statutory interpretation, as long as that interpretation isn't unreasonable. As long as the statute, if the statute's not perfectly clear, which they're usually not, um, and the agency's interpretation is reasonable, the court will defer to that, even if the court might say, you know, we think maybe the better way to interpret the law is, is this other way. But the agency's interpretation is at least reasonable, so we'll defer to that. So that's judicial. That's, that's you know, one of the main judicial review cases. On structure, there's, all, there's cases about what we call agency independence. You know, the president and the president alone takes the oath to take care of the laws are faithfully executed. Uh, or sorry, the oath to faithfully execute his office. He has a duty that, to take care of the laws are faithfully executed. The Constitution vests him with the executive power. It doesn't say he gets some of it and these other people get the rest of it. No, he gets it. And then the question then is, to what extent can Congress pass laws that create a little insulation between the president and the people who are nominally working for him? And one bucket of that is the civil service, the people sort of the day-to-day -day bureaucracy, but above them and between them and the president are the heads of agencies. And some agencies, usually this alphabet soup of multi-member commissions, like the Federal Trade Commission, the FTC, the Federal Energy Regulatory Commission, FERC, the National Labor Relations Board, NLRB. They are these multi-member boards that have a little bit of independence from the president. The president can't just fire them for no reason. He has to give certain kinds of reasons for firing them. And it's an open question over whether that's constitutional. I mean, most people wouldn't call it open, but I think it's increasingly open again. Since the mid-1930s, there was a case called Humphrey's Executor where, involving the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, 
where the Supreme Court said it's okay for certain kinds of agencies uh, to have this little bit of independence from the president. The Supreme Court reaffirmed that and expanded it a little bit in the, in the late 80s in Morrison v. Olson involving the independent counsel. Um, Justice Scalia's dissent in that case was, he said many times, his all-time favorite opinion. Um, I see I've, I've not only put our audience to sleep, I put your computer to sleep. Um, and then this is back in the news now because the Supreme Court is in this current term returning to this issue of agency independence. There's an agency that was created in the Dodd-Frank financial reforms called the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. I mean, technically, it's the Bureau of Consumer Financial Protection, but I think for marketing purposes, um, its advocates like to put the consumer first, not the Bureau, <laughs> um, which is pretty crafty. Um, that agency is special because the head of the agency has independence from the president, but he's not a multi-member commission. He's just one person. Um, and he also, by the way, has you know, independence from Congress because he's not funded in the same way. Um, uh, but anyway, the, the, the court is considering in this term the question over whether that structure, the independence without the multi-member commission, is constitutional or not. It'll be interesting to see what the court says. I mean, reading the tea leaves, my, my guess is the court will probably strike down some portion of the law. But it, it'll be interesting to see how far they go and how far individual justices push the court to go further in terms of reconsidering independence. Judge, now Justice Kavanaugh gave a talk um, at AEI, getting my <laughs> plugs in, um, a couple of years ago where he said the, this, this agency independence um, stuff is, is one of the doctrines that he really would, if he were on the court, and this was well before he was ever nominated, he said, you know, if he could change one body of precedent, it would be that. Hmm. Well, now the court kind of has a chance, and I don't know that it'll go full Kavanaugh on this, but but Kavanaugh and Gorsuch and Thomas might write interesting opinions, urging the court to go still further. Now, now that I've said that, probably the court will probably leave yeah, the statute completely right. alone. <laughs> okay, so I've talked about structure and judicial review. There's the question of delegation: how much power can Congress give to an agency? Um, the the case on that is uh, the main case is called Whitman versus American Trucking. Um, it's all about what we call the non-delegation doctrine. If Congress writes a statute that's so broad that it gives basic, puts basically no limits on the agency, well, in theory, the way we think of that is Congress has delegated away its legislative power. Um, uh, and the question is, can the courts ever stop that? In 200-plus years, the courts have really only stopped it a couple of times um, back in the New Deal era, actually twice in one year. Um, since then, the courts have been really loath to do that. And that's one of those areas I think where right now there's the most academic and judicial interest in rethinking this. Justice Gorsuch wrote an opinion. Um, I mean, Justice Thomas has been a has been calling for a stronger non-delegation doctrine for a long time. Justice Gorsuch wrote about this on the lower courts and wrote an opinion in a recent Supreme Court case called Gundy raising these issues. It wasn't a big surprise that he wrote the that Gorsuch wrote the opinion or that Thomas joined it. The fact that Chief Justice Roberts joined it mm. suddenly made it much more consequential. It's the dissenting opinion that launched a thousand law review articles, um, and then Judge Justice Kavanaugh. He wasn't on the court when that case when that case was heard, but he has recently issued his own opinion in a different case, joining this chorus. So the court is going to be rethinking that question about delegation of power. And then the last bucket of cases is the process cases. Like I said, judicial review of the agency process is really, it starts with the Administrative Procedure Act. But there are a number of cases, the famous ones are State Farm and FCC versus Fox, where the court 
um, thinks through how aggressively, or just recently, actually, in the last term, the census case, the citizenship question case, Department of Commerce uh, versus New York, um, all questions about how hard should the court look at an agency's explanations um, and how, how hard should they second guess them? Let's talk about that delegation. Yeah. Our founding fathers created a, a government that they said would see ambition counteracting ambition. Yeah. Might they be surprised to see Congress so willing to give away its power? Well, I mean, in a sense, ambition still counteracts ambition. Um, Republicans are ambitious to get on Fox and Friends, and <laughs> Democrats are ambitious to get on Morning Joe, and they counteract <laughs> each other. Um, but in this sort of institutional sense, I think the framers would be surprised um, by how, I mean, they Madison, when he's writing in, in Federalist 51, um, Federalist 47, you know, he's wor- he's writing about a strong legislature, right? He calls it at one point, he calls the legislative branch, you know, this impetuous vortex that draws all the power into it. And so the framers were worried first and foremost about Congress. That's why they split it, structurally split it into two, um, with two different constituencies and modes of election and paces of election. Um, I mean, they knew from the start that Congress was going to have to vest power in these in the executive branch and that sometimes it would be done broadly. Um, but I think Roberts was right in a case called City of Arlington where he said, um, it was an FCC case a few years ago, where he said in dissent that the founding fathers, you know, would scarcely believe their eyes hmm. if they saw the sheer amount of power that was wielded um, by administrative agencies who really, like I said before, make the laws that we live under on a day-to-day basis that, that Congress just doesn't anymore. Congress is sort of the ombudsman. I mean, that's one way, though, to think about the ambition is, you know, Madison said ambition will counteract ambition. Um, the, the, the interests of the man will be connected to the rights of the place. Well, the more statutes that Congress passed, the more sort of rights of oversight Congress gives itself. Mm. Every time it passes a statute, it creates for itself a new basis for oversight. And over the course of 100, 200 years, I mean, especially the last 150 years of statutes, Congress has created so much opportunity and need for oversight that that has become the place where their ambition really has the most political bang for the buck. All the, especially now in the C-SPAN era, where you can you know create TV commercials based on the clips of you either championing something an agency has done or you know scolding some bureaucrat for doing something you don't like. Um, that really would it really has turned things upside down. Oftentimes, presidents and others defend the use of executive power, administrative power. They say, "If Congress Congress won't act, therefore I will." I think that actually, in a way, gets it backwards. I think Congress doesn't act anymore because presidents will. Hmm. Because Congress has delegated away so much power, and agencies can always sort of take a, take the move on their own, it just radically changed at some point, or, or over time it radically changed the basic calculus of how Congress thinks about and goes about its own work and has put us in this really bad cul-de-sac uh, where, where Congress just won't leave, where Congress won't start legislating in a meaningful way anymore. Hmm. As the administrative state has accumulated more power, we hear some conservatives and an increasing number of conservatives that say, well, hold on a minute. Maybe this isn't so bad. How yeah. about instead of trying to tear this down, we just put the administrative state to work for us? Yeah. What do you say to that? Is is that a, a misguided way to think about this? Are they making a mistake? Well, it depends on how hard they push the argument. I mean, um, 
the administrative state is a fact, and it's not going away anytime soon. It's sometimes it's like the Catholic joke: "Do you believe in baptism?" Well, sure, I've seen it done. Um, do you believe in the administrative state? Yeah, sure, it's across the street. <laughs> um, the agencies aren't going away anytime soon, and presidents have Republican presidents have promised to dismantle certain agencies, and they never do. So you do need to grapple with the with the reality of the administrative state, and and you need to, you know, use it as best you can, you know, within lawful constitutional limits, for a policy making engine. Um, one of the best I keep talking about Justice Scalia, not because it's you, you know you were named after him, unless that was a wild coincidence, um, uh, but also because <laughs> because he really was the the most thoughtful um, commentator on this at that moment when President Reagan was elected, and he wrote a really amazing essay in 1981 in Regulation Magazine called Regulatory Reform, The Game Has Changed. And he really urged conservatives who spent the the late 70s proposing all sorts of congressional reforms to administration. He urged conservatives to recognize the fact that with President Reagan now elected, you had an opportunity to, um, to use federal power and federal administration towards conservative ends. And that that's a legitimate thing. Again, when it's done within constitutional limits, um, and so you shouldn't, my point is, yes, we shouldn't just sort of categorically disavow administration. You need to make a, a way to, to use it. But I, the, the version of the argument that worries me is the version that says, well, the other side is always going to do bad things. Um, the only way we'll teach them a lesson is if we kind of punch them in the face too, right. yeah. and then they'll be chastened. I just don't agree with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a, there is some, there's always been... That argument out there, I think there's a, there's a, a certain edge to it again today in some circles, and I'm just not there. But I think uh, I think Antonin Scalia was right. One focus of the work of your group at AEI is on the the mediating institutions yeah. of civil society, what Edmund Burke would call the the little platoons. Um, what effect does the administrative state have on those mediating institutions? Well, it hollows them out. It hollows them out in two ways. One is sometimes the administrative state just directly challenges them, right? Um, the more the administrative agencies get in, involved in the work of churches and charities and so on. So there's that. But then second, the more that the administrative state just becomes sort of pervasive in our day-to-day life and it plays a role, it, 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 it provides services that, that those mediating institutions used to provide, it just kind of crowds them out. Um, it just kind of crowds them out, and it's not intentional or malicious, but it still has that same effect. And also, like I said, the administrative state, um, to the extent that it changes the way we think about who we are and what we demand of our government, it also just changes the way we think of those mediating institutions, right? It used to be that, you know, if there if somebody was in economic trouble or at health trouble, you know, the in churches and charities, labor unions, and others would come to to help them. Well, now. The public, it's easier to think. Because the government, does, why isn't the government stepping in? Right. Um, and so there's, there's it. So I guess that's the three ways. One is the administrative state sometimes just directly um, targets those mediating institutions. Two, sometimes it just crowds them out. And three, a combination of both those things, it just changes the way that we ourselves think about those mediating institutions. I'll say on this, you know, I, listen, I'm just the law talking guy. Um, <laughs> The, the, the best writing on this in at, at, at AEI's SCCS program, you know, is my boss, Yuval Levin, and I'm not just saying that because he's my boss, um, although he's a very benevolent dictator. <laughs> um, but, but his books over the years um, uh, on institutions, on the fractured republic, his latest book is on institution building. But um, 
even two books ago, he did a book on Burke and Paine, Thomas Paine. And near the end, he talked about how Thomas Paine's sort of proto-libertarianism actually gives rise to the early, an early administrative state way of thinking because it's, it, it defines people in terms of just the individual and the government right. without those communities right. in the middle that Burke understood were so important. So Yuval's writings on this, um, visiting scholars like J.D. Vance and Ross Douthat, um, Michael Brennan Doherty, are all writing on this. And one of the real great joys of my job, and, and again, the Princetonian Ramesh Panuru, and one of the great jo- joys of my job is getting to learn from them as they're writing those things in a very different field and sort of helping me to better understand my own field. Well, I th- I, I'm a little biased, but I think you have adequately proven that the administrative state is a bad thing. Okay, so good, now, good. Mission accomplished. Yeah, and I'm sure the listeners feel the same way. So now now we can turn and say, okay, well, what might be done about it? Yeah. Uh, first, if it's not giving up too much ground, if we were to say, if it is inevitable, if the administrative state is inevitable in a complex society, what should we look for in it? Yeah. Okay, so a couple of years ago, one of President Trump's advisors said, we're here to uh, deconstruct the administrative state. And I understood what he meant. I think the better mindset it's not about deconstruction. It's about construction or reconstruction. It's how do we reconstruct a Republican state or Republican institutions within the administrative state. The classic success story in this is the White House Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs. It's such a mundane title. Basically, the White House's centralized regulatory review. Reagan, um, with my, my old boss, Boyd and Gray, and others, um, formulated this centralized process by which presidents and, and his advisors would really play a central role in restraining and directing the administrative state. And that might be the greatest success conservatives have had in the last century in reigning in the administrative Mm -hmm. state, just making it more accountable to the president. Um, So the first thing that we can do within the administrative state is just make it more accountable to all three branches of government, Congress, the courts, uh, and, and the president. The second is within individual agencies, find ways to develop institutions, norms, traditions, practices, that promote transparency and accountability, and that are sticky. They can't just be sort of wiped away by the next administration, like shaking an etch-a-sketch. Anything you do to promote transparency, I think those will tend to be sticky. They're harder to justify taking them away. A lot of agencies right now are putting more and more guidance documents and other materials on the website so that they're easier for people to find. They're not hidden away in the bureaucracy. It's hard for me to imagine the next administration just single-handedly wiping that away. So it's, it's, it's less about just sort of dynamiting agencies. In fact, you should never dynamite. You know, <laughs> I'm, just, I'm, very, I'm against dynamiting agencies. <laughs> Very controversial stand. Good to have that on the record. Yeah, yeah. on the record. Um, but it's, it's about building the institutions um, that can actually embody the values. Um, this is a, a great, great line. When Clarence Thomas was running the EEOC, um, and, and Ed Meese, the attorney general, was giving some speeches about um, we need constitutional structure because we have a government of structure, not values. Then EEOC Chairman Thomas said, actually, what we really need are institutions. We need, to, we need institutions that embody values. Hmm. And so it's a building of institutions that help reinforce limited government, personal responsibility, those sorts of things. Building that inside and around the administrative state is probably the most important task right now. Let's talk about what one of those institutions, the Supreme Court, yeah. could do to rein in the administrative state. 
Uh, you mentioned that there seems to be some interest right now from members of the court to rein in, especially target Chevron. Yeah. Can you say a word about that and what we might expect from them? Yeah. So on Chevron, I'll just say right away, I'm of the mend it, don't end it school. Mm. Um, I think that Chevron at its worst is a really bad thing, the courts being reflexively deferential. Um, but maybe the only thing worse than Chevron would be the absence of Chevron and and judges doing what a lot of them did in the 1970s, you know, just ignoring the election results and, and sort of f- trying to force agencies to a- adopt much more aggressive regulatory policies than the agencies wanted to under statutes that didn't command those aggressive regulatory processes. And so I'd, I don't think we should get rid of Chevron. And also, you know, there's a good article right now by uh, University of Minnesota's uh, Kristen Hickman on Chevron's inevitability, that it's hard to even imagine Chevron going away completely. The question is, how do you put limits on it? How do you sort of maybe restructure it a little bit in ways that ensure that the biggest policy decisions still have to be made by Congress and that the Congress understands that if they write you know, an extremely broad statute on the most consequential issues, the court will fix a meaning to that statute rather than leaving it to the agencies just for the sake of stability and mm. so on. That, that seems to have been the trajectory. Um, Chief Justice Roberts, who we don't always think of as a regulatory reformer because of his votes in the Obamacare cases, um, he has been maybe the most effective, well, definitely the most effective and maybe even the most vocal critic of, of Chevron. Even I mean, he's right up there with Justice Thomas and Justice Gorsuch. But his approach is more of a mend-it-don't-end-it school that I, I sort of find appealing. And I think that approach might actually get traction with Justices Kagan or Breyer, perhaps, and and you could see a centrist coalition um, that would actually, you know, make more reforms on this. I'd say on non-delegation, non-delegation is trickier. It's very, very hard for um, for judges to draw the line between a statute that's so vague that it's unconstitutional, and a statute that's really, really vague but doesn't cross the red line right. yet. Um, Justice Scalia, in another one of his AEI essays, um, one called um, A Note on the Benzene Case, if anybody wants to Google it, he sketched this out really well, that, that, that of course, this principle of non-delegation is a core constitutional um, value. Um, at the same time, it's, it's the hardest kind of line for judges to draw. Um, and I'm not sure yet how, as, as somebody who really hopes the court reconsiders this doctrine and makes it... Uh, more rigorous, um, a more rigorous non-delegation doctrine. I agree with Scalia, though. It's just almost impossible to see what that line would be, um, a judicially manageable line. And, you know, right now, like I said, Gorsuch's opinion in the Gundy case has launched just dozens of law review articles. And my colleagues at AEI are working on an edited volume on this issue. Um, um, My program at Mason is doing a symposium on this issue. And we'll see what comes of it. But, I mean, the answer isn't there yet. Uh, let's turn from the judiciary to the executive. What has the Trump administration done to rein in the administrative state? And of course, it's an election year, so we have to ask, how might his approach differ from what we might see from one of the Democratic nominees? So the administration's done three things, at least. Um, one, um, they prioritized the appointment of judges who were reforming these, who, who were open to reforms. I mean, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh, I, I think it's pretty clear that they're some of their most important characteristics, the things that most put them on the radar of the White House, uh, was their view of the administrative state and the need for reforming administrative law. Um, 
President Trump, from the very outset of his administration, issued a number of executive orders that um, added to the orders that were already out there from Clinton, Reagan, Obama, driving the administrative state and agencies in, in certain directions. I think that's a good thing. I actually think it's good when the president makes very clear um, his instructions to these agencies. Of course, an executive order can't supersede a statute. I mean, but with when these statutes leave agencies much discretion, it's a good thing for the president to give direction and that that direction be transparent and accountable. Um, and so a lot of those executive orders, I think, did a great job. And then last, the president appointed some really innovative um, reformers, people who are really thinking about how to institutionalize reform within their own agency. Um, maybe the best example early on was Secretary Chow of the Department of Transportation. You wouldn't normally think of that as like a hotbed of regulatory reform. Secretary Chow and her deputy secretary, Jeff Rosen, who's now the deputy attorney general, they really prioritized regulatory reform and, and modernization. Um, and you saw this at a number of the some of the less controversial um, you know, agencies like the CFTC. Sometimes you can you can actually maybe achieve more regulatory reform there because it's not the hot button hmm. issues as much. So, now, now, the danger is that the administration got off to such a big start with the executive orders and so on, I think there was a almost a risk of declaring victory hmm. um, when things were just starting. I, you know, about a year into the administration, it felt like a lot of people were spiking the ball on the ten yard line, and it wasn't even the last ten yard line; it was the first <laughs> ten yard line. Um, there was so much to do with um, the notice and comment process, actually getting these proposals through the agency process, and then withstanding judicial review. We don't actually know how much of this is really going to. I mean, say President Trump, say he, I mean, if he wins in November, he'll have four more years to continue to cement these policies. If he loses in November, it's really easy to see a Biden or Sanders or Warren administration just, like I said, shaking everything like an etch-a-sketch and very quickly erasing almost all of the policy changes the administration has instituted. The question is, which institutional changes, the the new executive orders, the new um, norms on transparency and so on. What? Are, how much of that stays? And we won't know until we find out. Mm -hmm. I want to switch gears ever so slightly sure. uh, to make sure that we discuss your your piece in the Atlantic, which we'll link to oh, in you. the in the show notes. Um, the title is "A Republic." If we can keep it, the subtitle, yeah. the government set up by James Madison and the other founders requires a virtuous public and virtuous leaders or the whole system will fail. Yeah. Um, in this piece, you talk about the importance of our constitutional structure and the importance of civic education and understanding, appreciating and maintaining that structure. Yeah. But you point out that while this is necessary, it's not sufficient. So what else is needed? So... One of the two greatest victories um, of the conservative legal movement in the last 50 years has been restoring the public's appreciation of constitutional structure, right? Um, both federalism and the separation of powers. From the 1970s onward, realizing that the structure matters, um, the court has an important role in defending that structure, um, because as Madison said, you know, we need a government fit for men who aren't angels. And, and so... Um, we don't have sort of a, a government of, of good intentions. We have a government of structure, constitutional structure. I, I worry that the great success of that, and it was a great success, um, 
is that we now sort of underappreciate the other side of this, that actually certain virtues are indispensable. Mm. And it's not that the it's not that structure is a substitute for virtue and, and, and vice versa. It's that the structure itself, as the framers envisioned it, actually presupposed certain virtues. Actually, Ham- Madison says this explicitly at the end of Federalist 55, talking about the House of Representatives. He says, um, if all of these caricature, if, you know, the, the critics of this Constitution, if all of their caricatures of the people and of, and of statesmen are correct, if this is just a bunch of terrible people, then yeah, of, of course, um, this is this whole project is, is hopeless. But actually, Republican virtue presupposes certain virtues more than any other form of government. Unlike a monarchy where the king's honor is bound up in the success of his administration, you know, in Republican government where people come and go from government, it's not the wholly owned property of anybody. Um, it counts on certain virtues to make it succeed. Um, and then if we don't have those virtues, Madison says, well, then nothing but, the, as he, I think he says, the, the chains of despotism are going to restrain the people. And that's not the only place where this comes up. I mean, when you read, you know, when you read through the Federalist, you find these themes coming up either explicitly or implicitly throughout the, the, the Federalist and with respect to all three parts of government. At the end of Federalist 78, Hamilton's famous discussion of judges, he closes with a discussion about the about why we need judicial independence to attract the right kind of justice or judge, not just in terms of legal skill, but in terms of personal integrity. Um, With Hamilton's discussion of the presidency, the electoral college, um, the appointment of officers working for the presidency, and all of the exercise of the pardon power and all of this, um, Hamilton refers again and again back to themes of of certain virtues, Um, and then Madison as, as well. And so the point of this essay was to say we need to do we do need to think more about the, these republican virtues these virtues peculiarly necessary for republican government and understand that we actually do need them madison was right um, we have a government fit for men who aren't angels um, but he never said that that we have a, a a government fit for men who are devilish and we're not there now um, but it's not hard to see us getting there someday as politics becomes uglier and uglier, uh, 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 the public seeing politics as I'm right and you're, you're, you're evil. Mm-hmm. Um, just this, you know, this constant flight 93 mentality. That was the narrative on the conservative side in 2016. And it's now clearly the narrative on the democratic side in 2020, that if we don't, if we, the Democrats don't win this election, um, then the Republic is doomed um, and therefore, we need to fight, you know, to the death in the cockpit to reclaim um, control of the flight. I, I thought that that metaphor was abhorrent in 2016 and abhorrent today, um, but it seems to be approaching conventional wisdom. So that was the point of the essay: is to point people back in another direction. Some will make the argument that uh, the American regime was built on this low but solid foundation. Yeah. Um, and that it's incapable of replenishing these Republican virtues that you discuss yeah. that it needs to survive. What do you say to that? Well, the vir- that's the thing is the, the virtues, that stock of virtue doesn't replenish itself, right? It, we draw down on it. Um, or to use a different metaphor, you know, institutions don't maintain themselves. You know, we need to maintain our institutions. And so you're right. It, was, it, was main- it could be maintained through things as broadly diverse as education, church, family, 
but also, by the way, statesmanship, that, that leaders sometimes, our own leaders, would help to replenish that stock of virtue and vice versa, right? Um, um, you need all of those things. Um, and I sort of end my essay with just a, a quick sort of ode to that. I mean, I, don't, it's, I didn't have concrete proposals that'll be for the future, um, but it does require that. And I'll be honest, I mean, I think that's where the skeptic is right. I don't know how we get back to that, mm. right? It's the question of how is it that you solve these things? Um, I, I just don't know yet. Um, I'm just at the point where of saying we need to find a way if, if a way exists. And, and now the work turns to, well, what would those ways be? So in a way, I, I, I agree and disagree with that criticism. I, I, um, I agree that it's, it's necessary that we find a way to replenish these. I disagree that it's sort of hopeless. Um, but I, it's, it's, it's the key criticism of my point. Well, podcasts like this one and uh, uh, groups like the Social, Cultural, and Constitutional Studies Group at AEI are, are going to help us get back there. So, Adam White, thank you. Well, thank you. And thank you very much to the, the Madison program. It's just been such a pleasure to be here. Well, there you have it. Adam White with an introduction to the administrative state. I hope you enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. And I hope to have you back with us next time here on Madison's Notes.